Welcome to VPG's virtual water cooler chat podcast, where we share lessons and stories of women professionals to help empower other women and expand a greater circle of influence. So we walk our journey with those who understand and appreciate us. Today, we are going to chat with Dahlia George. Dahlia is a staff attorney at the Office of Enrollment and Discipline, OED, at the United States Patent and Trademark Office, USPTO. Her primary responsibilities involve investigating attorney and patent agent misconduct, spearheading the USPTO diversion program as an alternative to discipline, examining trademark applications for registration, representing USPTO in Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, EEOC, Administrative Hearings, and Merit Systems Protection Board Appeals. Dahlia also has experience as a USPTO Freedom of Information Act FOIA officer and served as a United States Air Force Judge Advocate General, JIAJ. In her spare time, Dahlia enjoys hiking, reading, yoga, and watching movie classics. Uh, the opinions and stories that I have contributed to this podcast are my own and they do not belong or I cannot give credit to anybody at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office or the Office of Enrollment and Discipline. All those views expressed are my own and only my own. Hi, Dahlia. Thank you so much um, for accepting our invitation to be on this virtual water cooler chat. And okay. really appreciate having you here. And my pleasure. Yes. <laughs> Would you mind sharing your journey of becoming a trademark attorney, a staff attorney at the Office of Enrollment and Discipline at the USPTO? It's a great question because you use the word I was thinking of, which is journey. You know, life uh, and experience never goes a straight line, right? Journeys usually you have detours, you have maybe uh, one-way streets. So you have to sort of gauge and be prepared for any changes during your journey. Uh, no journey goes smoothly all the time or as you think it's going to go. Um, Back in the Stone Age, that's when I started practicing law. And let's see, I when I got out of law school, I went to a little firm in Columbus, Ohio. I'm originally from Ohio. And they did workers' comp, and I was just happy to get a job. I didn't know what workers' comp was or what to do with it or if I would like it. I hated it. Absolutely hated it. And I guess... That kind of showed because I think they felt that um, I was not happy and I was not happy. So uh, one day I'm just, you know, I came home from work and um, I used to subscribe to the ABA magazine. You know, it's kind, of, it's kind of like our law quarterly. And I'm just flipping through the articles and I see this little ad and it says, become a JAG with the U.S. Air Force. I'm thinking, what the heck is the U.S. Air Force? What the heck is JAG? I mean, all these things were like a foreign language to me. But I said, you know what? I'm so unhappy, and I, I just, I want out, and I still don't know what I want to do. So it makes sense to at least dip my toe in a different pool and see how things work out. So sure enough, I applied, 
And I think within maybe a month or so, I get a call and it's, you know, the recruiter uh, for Jazz and he does a phone interview. One of the bases that I uh, ended up going to is Pease Air Force Base, and it's at P-E-A-S-E. Now, that's in New Hampshire, and not only in New Hampshire, it's in Portsmouth, which I don't know if you know that area. It is beautiful. So, of course, uh, I show up. I have to tell you this funny story. I show up my first day on the base. I don't know anything, right? haven't studied any protocols, nothing. And what they do is, because I was recruited as a first lieutenant, being an officer, your car has a sticker on it. They give you a sticker that identifies you as an officer, whether it's your spouse driving it, what you get is a, a, this great snappy salute when you cross the gate, when you're about to enter the base. So sure enough, you know, this very young, good-looking airman, I come in on the base and he gives me this snappy salute. And what do I do? This is how I returned his salute. Hi. And I'm sure he was thinking, what the heck? Who are they getting these people from, right? And he's looking at you thinking, she's an officer? Oh, my God. So that was kind of my first intro. And hey, that's diversity. <laughs> um, I get assigned to the base office. Now, I don't know if any of you know about the military. The way it works is like any agency. You have an office that basically advises the base commander and the commanders underneath him what you can and cannot do on base, what kind of activities are okay versus things that maybe are more prone to being looked at as gambling. Uh, what can happen if an airman or an officer gets into misconduct off base? Do we still have jurisdiction to discipline the person. So the base office does courts martial. They do administrative hearings, which is when you're trying to fire someone, it's not discipline. It's just simply a hearing to see if they're fit to stay on or if they've done something that is worthy of separation. Um, so, and contracts and procurement, you know, when, when you buy things, right? The, the, the government buys toilets, pencils, paper, all of that, that's under procurement. And you also advise base uh, airmen and their spouses. So if someone has a lease and they're trying to get out of it or they're having problems with the landlord or a credit agency, they come in and we give them advice. So you can see the difference between workers' comp, where you're just in a buttonhole situation versus an office that has, like a, think of it like a salad, right? You can sample all kinds of things. And I really like that because being new and young, what do I know about claims? What do I know about contracts? So it was a good starting ground for me. I then must have done very well because believe it or not, I got promoted to what they call an AD which is Area Defense Council. That's exactly what it is. I was defending those who were being court-martialed or being uh, asked to leave, to be uh, suspended, or to be just, you know, uh, just taken out of service. 
anyway, so I get up to my um, the end of the tour. It's a four-year de uh, deployment, four-year tour. And I was going to sign up for another stint. In fact, they asked me to come to D.C. and be circuit defense counsel, which means I don't just represent Pease or, or, or the base in Maine. I actually have a circuit, the second circuit. So I'm bopping around from one state to the next, depending on what the need is, right? So um, I have um, defended uh, Glenn's theft auto. I had Glenn Larceny. So the Persian Gulf War was just starting as I was finishing up my tour. And instead of going to the, because the war uh, took up uh, suddenly, they decided that it's better for me to go overseas and do courts martial rather than go and be a circuit. And once the war is over and they reassign me, then I can come back to DC. So I decided to, to get out of the service. And I liked Pease, as I said, and I liked New Hampshire, so I wanted to stay. And I was looking around and I saw there was an ad for an assistant attorney general uh, in the Office of Attorney General of, the, of New Hampshire. And this is in Concord. Concord is in is the capital of New Hampshire. And essentially what ended up happening is um, I had to take another bar. Uh, some states, some people may know this, some states have reciprocity. And what that means is, for example, if I'm in Virginia and I want to practice in D.C., D.C. will say, okay, you've practiced X number of years in Virginia. We will take that as good enough. You don't have to take our bar. Some states don't want to do that. New Hampshire is one of those states. They want to stay small. They like their bar to stay small. I studied hard. It was tough. But luckily, I passed because my job was on the line. The idea was, okay, we're going to hire you at the AG's office. However, if you don't pass, you're out of here. <laughs> so there's a little bit of pressure. Just a little bit of pressure. <laughs> Just a little bit. <laughs> I, I don't know. The stars were all aligned, right? So I, I did end up passing it. I really enjoyed working at the AG's office. What I ended up being as an AAG is they put me in the Consumer Protection Bureau. And what that means is this. So let's say you are an elderly couple and you hire someone to paint your house or to add on to your uh, dwelling. They come in, you pay them, and they show up the first few days and then they don't show up. You can't get hold of them. Uh, they built you. You can't get hold of them. You can't find out what's happening. That's consumer protection. So they usually would write us in and we would look into it and see, okay, was there fraud involved? Was this a shady operation? So that's investigation. And I say that, you'll see why I'm saying that word. So you have to investigate what happened with these particular folks. And you can imagine the elderly are perfect targets for the other part of the consumer protection is I actually was the prosecutor for people who are licensed professionals. For example, I represented the agency for the Board of Medical uh, 
practitioners, which is doctors, um, psychiatrists, and psychologists, PhDs, social workers, clinical workers, even embalmers. So all these agencies, all these licensure boards, I was responsible for. That gave me a lot of experience in terms of presenting a case. That took me to the USPTO. I was interested, I began to get interested in IP because where I was in New Hampshire, the number one law school is Franklin Pierce and they actually are very well known for IP. So I ended up studying for the LLM at Franklin Pierce. So I got my LLM at in IP, I then applied to the USPTO, not knowing anything that I'm interested in trademarks and I, I'd like to work in that. Well, wouldn't you know it, the dot-com bubble burst. So I was here in DC waiting to get a job and sure enough, I think it was about 2000, believe it or not, 2005, that's when they started to hire people back at the PTO. They had had they had to riff people, meaning they had to lay off people during the dot-com uh, bursting. And that was a big problem. You know, they, they don't ever want to do that again. Long story short, I come in, I get interviewed. And the first, they asked me, why are you here? What, you know, what makes you interested in it? And I said, well, you know, it's something I've always wanted to know about. I have an LLM. Um, and, you know, I'd like to know, and they said to me, you will definitely become a specialist doing this job. So I was hired as a trademark examining attorney, loved it. I spent about three years in doing um, prosecution, trademark prosecution. And then during the third year, a detail opened up uh, in another part of the PTO, and that was the Office of General Law. Think of Office of General Law like I was telling you what the base office is. Office of General Law, you are representing, again, the agency. Someone who has an EEOC complaint, someone who got fired, may feel that this was not fair, they will take it to Merit Systems Protection Board. So again, we're looking at when an agency gets sued or has to represent itself, that's what we do. So I ended up pulling a detail there, very different from trademarks. No, it's not production. You get a file and you look at it and you say, okay, is there harassment here? Was there sexual discrimination? Was there employment? So that's, that gives you, again, it's kind of the same, but it's very different. So it's the same idea is that you are representing one client and that's the agency, not the employees, the agency itself. And the boss called me up, the deputy general counsel, and said, would you be interested in joining us full-time? It was a leg up for me that I had a detail because they knew me. I'm a known quantity, and I had worked with them, so they knew whether or not they liked me. They got along with me. So I was there for about four or five years. While I was there, the FOIA officer left, so the general counsel calls me in and he says, you know, I think you have the personality and the temperament to be a FOIA officer. And FOIA, just in short, is Freedom of Information Act. So if you want to know about something, for example, if you want to know the undersecretary of the Patent and Trademark Office, when they went to this particular trip, 
what were the expenses that they had when they stayed at a hotel. Uh, I'd like to see the bills involved. Uh, right. Did they take a limousine? See, so and people will ask all kinds of things. Now, some things we couldn't share, of course. They're deliberative pro work product, but that's what I had to deal with. So after doing that for about, I think, two years, I said, okay, I've gotten my experience. Let's see what else is going on. At the time, and again, I always think of things as just opportunity with timing. You know, those two things can, can be kind of your fate in many ways. At the time, the OED uh, director was also on the verge of retiring. And uh, one of the people who's under Office of General Counsel, we have um, the General Counsel himself, and that's the person who, you know, represents the state. But underneath that, the middle manager is Deputy General Counsel. So the general counsel sent the deputy down to become the OED, the new OED director. Now, I had worked with the deputy quite a bit. So, again, I was a known quantity. So he took me with him along with two other people from general law to be part of OED. So that's how I ended up in OED. It's a really short story. And well, so, yeah, I can tell. <laughs> really condensed. Of course, there's much more, but that's essentially, that was my journey. That was my route to where I am, you know? And again, I took a lot of chances. That's the one thing I would tell people is don't ever think that you know what you're going to end up doing, A, and B, don't ever think that you know what you think you know. Uh, what I mean by this is this. Have you ever looked at a Monet painting? Here's what I like to say. This is the analogy I would give people. If you look at it from far away, it looks lovely, right? You see the sunset and the water and gorgeous. As you get closer, right, it begins to look like chicken scratch, right? It, it, it be, you're looking at it and you're thinking, what the heck is this? This is the same thing I was just looking at. So think of life like that. But sometimes we see something the way we think we see it, right? It looks great from far away. But as you begin to, to get closer to it, or as you begin to perhaps be in it, to be involved in it, you realize that ah, maybe it's not quite what I thought it was going to be. So life is a Monet painting, and, and it will throw you curves, but always take the opportunity to learn. You never know. If you hate it, you hate it. If you like it, it may open new doors to you. In three words, can you describe yourself? I'm an introvert. <laughs> um, I could not tell. <laughs> I know, and I work hard at that. I really do. But I am, I, I have sort of solitary hobbies, you know, reading and uh, crossword puzzles, that kind of thing, yoga. I'd say I'm stubborn uh, and determined. And I think you need to have those the last two features for one reason. Don't give up so easily. And even if you feel like you're wasting your time or that you're not good at something, just stay with it for a while. Give it a chance before you make a decision that this is not what I want or this is not what I want to do. Because believe it or not, any and all experience you get is a rich thing to have. You can never, ever be poor having experience 
different experiences because opportunities from nowhere and everywhere will pop up. So those would be the three words that you... So, so I'm going to share a little bit about me with you. Yeah. Uh, one of the words that when you said stubborn, I think, well, actually, I think I'm an introvert, but I think I'm more of an ambivert. Whenever I said I'm introvert to many friends, they were like, no, you're not an introvert. I'm like, okay, I'll settle for being an ambivert. So Vanessa Van Edwards, she studied like the science of people and she, so you not, you know, you know about Vanessa Van Edwards? She's really amazing, but she was just so (laughs) impressive when I was flipping through to figuring out what podcast or what book do I want to read. I read cues. And um, so that was like really interesting to study like the behavior of people. And from a social scientist perspective, and um, I think she used to want to work for the intelligence community, but then she decided not to do that. And so it was really interesting how she shaped her journey. So one of the things that she talked about was that introverts, she said that she was an, int- she was an introvert. She was like a recovering awkward person. And um, I'm like, I look at her like, there's nothing awkward about you. So I think sometimes people do not really recognize how challenging and also possible for someone to turn completely around. Because I was so bad when I first started like VPG. I applied for a couple of um, grants and fellowships. I did not get it but it required me to take video of myself and I hated every part of it. I was like literally just, I I hated when I have to review myself. And I also am a relatively private person. You could not really quite tell this day, but well, it's just part of it is the mindset switch of do I keep everything to myself? And just basically look at part of it as shame or do I look at it as growth and sharing with other people? And I don't necessarily want to share everything with everyone. People have to earn their trust, right? To me anyway. And so it was like really interesting how I started the podcast. I'm so glad you said yes. I'm so glad I met you like for this ethics panel in 2022. Yeah, 2022, when we did the ethics panel together and, and yeah. organized for you and, you know, a couple of people on, on that panel for the PTAP Bar Association. So the other word that I was thinking about is the print, um, when you said stubborn, and I share with one of the other guests that when she said, I'm stubborn, I'm like, no, don't look at it that way. You're a principal because that's what my dad said. <laughs> It's true. Sounds it has a negative connotation. It, exactly. But it's it's not. That means you are not just giving up quickly. You want to kind of see things through. So, you know, with the current women empowerment movement, there's been great strides and development. But there's also been a lot of, like, women executives that in high places that had to quit, basically, and to maintain their mental wellness because there's so much, there's a structural bias. 
So a lot of the people, women, uh, female executives, that even when they get up to the top and sometimes they don't feel heard, how do you yeah. feel about that? You know, what part of that do you relate in your particular professional and personal journey? Real quick. <laughs> Um, I, I will be totally honest with you. I have, um, I've been sort of, if you want to call it the victim, I don't like that word, but I have been the recipient of a lot of sexual uh, harassment. But at the time I was practicing, you know, this is pre-Anita Hill and, and all of the B2 and all of that. It was something that I felt, well, that's part of the job, that comes along with any position. And I was afraid to say anything because I didn't want to lose my job and I didn't want people to think she's a troublemaker. Because remember, that label can still hold to this day. If if you speak up about, you know, somebody has done you wrong or you feel you've been harassed because of your gender, that can label you in a negative way. Believe it or not, I think we have come a long way since my day. Um, I started practicing in the 80s. Here's what I think, and I'll be honest with you. Um, I find that, you know, uh, women have a tricky role. And the reason I say that is they have to be savvy. Savvy means I'm not saying hide your talents or hide your genius, but you cannot seem like uh, you are trying to prove something because you're a woman. I think that puts you in the defeat column from the get-go. I think you approach anything and everybody um, in sort of a calm manner, not defensive, not aggressive. I, I think the key is just to be even and stable. And I think also with experience, when you start to show success, and you start to show that you are being effective, you will get, you will gain the respect of many people. Some people, you will never, ever get them to appreciate anything you have done as far as accomplishments. They're going to either say, ah, oh, it's because she's a woman, and now we're living in this age where they're giving women all kinds of opportunities, or I don't think she's that great. I mean, a, a, a man didn't get a job because of her, but she's nothing special about her. So there'll always be detractors, always. And we don't live in a perfect world. But I will tell you this, women have made quite a bit of strides. I mean, it is incredible to me that we're even talking about this. This was not a subject that was even approached. As a woman, I think you're straddling a fence that will always be a bit wobbly. And each woman has to sort of find her voice in terms of how she presents herself. The one thing I would say is for any woman, and for me especially, I learned the hard way is the more I try to sort of show people that um, I know what I'm doing and I'm smart and I'm a woman and you can't put me down, the more I try to, to come across that way, I think the more vulnerable I became. If you look at yourself as just a person and you treat yourself that way, you, you know, you, you're not um, you know, there's a language that they say women use, uh, many books have been written about this, that men don't. And, and there are certain verbs, and women don't use action verbs, they use a lot of passive verbs. 
And things like I feel, not I think, uh, those are perceived unconsciously. And this is, again, part of the learning I from doing with psychologists, dealing with them. Men, when you say I feel to most men, sounds like, yeah, it's, it's from her gut. It's, it's an emotional thing. Want to kind of read your audience, you know, know what kind of people you're working with. Are they auditory? Are they visual? Are they perceptive? Do they say, I hear you, I think, I see, I feel? Because that language is so key, I think, more than anything else. Because once they pick up that vibe from you, then they know, okay, we're all on the same page. But if you're talking at each other, they're going to always make a distinction that it's because she's a woman, ah, she's not up to the job, she's not she's kind of soft. And so I'd say read the room. <laughs> That's always been the theme for me before you say or do anything or make any judgments. Just learn people. You know, people are complicated. Knowledge is power. I don't care if you're a man, a woman, a child. The more you know, believe me, nobody can attack you because if you have the knowledge, you have the power. Knowledge equals power. And that to me has always been the great lesson. I have two points I want to make and I wanted to get your response on this. The first point is sometimes, and I, this actually applied to myself, is that sometimes we want to earn the approval of people that disapprove us more than the people that approve us. What do you think about that? Excellent point. Excellent point. Well, it's a little insecure to me because the power of persuasion, um, I don't think I don't think you'll be able to have that over everyone. There'll always be people who are not approving of you. Here's what, the way I look at it. I always look at it in terms of, is this person worth my concern about whether or not they, for example, is it a boss? Is it a supervisor? Is it a colleague? Is it someone who you know, you just met or someone who is an outsider to you, they don't know you well enough to know whether or not you are capable of something. Because some people will make a decision about you within two minutes, right? They first, they meet you, they hear you speak, and that's it. First impressions are very tough to break down. But I think it's always important to see who is it that's making the disapproval? Who is it that is disapproving of you? If it's someone that you respect, oh my gosh, that's the person you want to make sure, you want to know what is going on. But very often, I find that people, when they disapprove of you, it's either out of envy, out of jealousy, out of feeling insecure themselves, and they mirror that onto you, or uh, they are just not, they're intimidated. And believe it or not, that does it sounds like an opposite thing to say, but very often when someone disapproves of you, I often wonder, is it because they feel maybe a little threatened by you or they feel like you know something they don't know or you've kind of touched a nerve with them? So It, it could also yeah. be that they're just not your people. <laughs> well, and that's it. Right? See, it's not your tribe. 
Absolutely. And that's why I always say read the room. Would you want to spend time with that person? Would you want to engage that person in any kind of interact? No. Then I say, you know, sleep important, right? They're just not. Um, I, think, so- I think that is like one of the major area of growth that I had to do really fast, you know, because yeah. when you run your own company, you can you can be approved by everyone. And I happen to be a people pleaser for most of my life. So doing that switch, it was just really, really tough. The second point is about boundaries. So I think there's always a, this struggle between like, no, I no means no, versus saying yes to get opportunity. I don't remember where I heard this, but like boundaries is a pop, properly line. I think that is Henry Cloudings. He's a psychiatrist. He wrote um, a book called Necessary Ending. Basically, you have to trim the roses to make sure that it grows properly. And sometimes if you don't end a certain thing or a relationship, you cannot grow further. Yes. You know, because it's just everything is, you know, competing for your nutrition, your energy. You just cannot grow. So I thought that was really interesting. And then also, you know, you create your boundaries. And sometimes in the past, I actually allow a lot. I had no boundary before. So now I'm learning to like when people are saying, um, saying yes, I still have like my intuition sometimes is like, no, I'm going to say yes to this. When you think that you are the only one, you are most yes. likely not. <laughs> That's right. You are never alone. And I will tell you this, you, you sound a lot like me, Ashley, in terms of the way you process things. And I, I will go out on a limb and say that I think most successful women, uh, I, I'd like to say most successful people, but let's let's talk about the women. I think most of successful women are the ones who are introspective and when you know your limitations just as much as your strength, that really gives you a, a big leg up. So here's what I would say. This is my closing line to you. Be a duck. What do I mean by be a duck? When you see ducks, right, on the lake, they look so calm and serene and, you know, they look so peaceful. But you know what? Underneath that water, they're paddling like crazy, right? <laughs> So that's what we have to learn to be, be ducks, which is don't, as the, you know, you used to be an ad, don't let them see you sweat. And I know that's hard sometimes, especially for introverts, but trust me when I tell you, you always know more than the audience you're talking to. You do. You have a perspective that they cannot possibly know about. And I think people are now more and more open to engaging with um foibles and flaws and weaknesses, I think we're beginning to accept that as part of the human condition, right? It's not seen as a negative. If if anything, I think it actually works as a plus because when you're aware of flaws and weaknesses, it gives you a fuller understanding of what your strengths are. So I never see something and say, you know, this is a bad thing to have. This is part of you. So you don't have to cultivate it, but be aware of it and, and use it to the best advantage you can rather than just trying to 
stuff it back inside. I used to think being an introvert was, you know, like um, someone who committed a criminal, right? And if if you didn't engage in parties and social uh, outings and such, that made you uh, aloof and, and cool and not friendly. And I found a lot of people were like me. They're, they're introverts, but you try to sort of not be as much uh, because you can't be one thing all the time. You, ha you have to have a, a balance like anything else. Have a nice medium. That's how life really should be handled. No extremes, you know? My college professor actually had a different interpretation when he taught me two things in life. One, nothing venture, nothing gain, which is what I practice for the most part. And then the second thing is be a duck. But what he said when this be a duck is to let things roll off your back. Uh, yeah. My professor is unfortunately no longer here, but he was like an amazing scholar, Harvard Law graduate, didn't want to do private practice because he was much more into education. And yeah. so he decided to like devoted his time to do like international, like um, visiting fellowship and also yeah. uh, business law. He preferred to teach students in the business school, but he taught like international business law. And I was his research assistant and doing translations of, uh, you know, documents for him and uh he has like you know the title four title title four grant or something like that under the department of education and so i was able to basically help him with the research that he was doing it was like he just always like whenever i was like i just don't understand why people do this and he was like ashley i tell you be a duck i'm like what does it mean he was like let it roll off your back you see the grand single thing is not that important you know, I'm glad you said that. I completely, that adds to the, yeah, to the analogy. I like that. And what was your thesis about, uh, Ashley? Intercultural negotiation between Chinese and Americans. What? Really? Yeah. When, when I graduated, because I was also mm -hmm. working for the Center for Business Cyber, Center for International Business Educational Research at the time. Because I was in Kansas and I was like with a bunch of uh, business, small business development council. And my professor was talking to other people about it. So at the time, one of the VP of sales of Raytheon purchased my thesis. And I would talk yeah. about it. And it was really, I mean, this is one of the things that I really enjoy education. And this is one of the reasons why I really, I am very creative. And I'm now under the environment that I don't really have to respond to a lot of people. If I can figure out how to get the funding, I can actually make things happen, right? I believe so. Yeah. It was really amazing. We recently, um, we recently added three people to the team. All my people, none of us are full time, really. I mean, except for me, I'm really full time. But you know, most of them they have other other jobs, and this is sort of like just part-time for them oh. and um yeah because this is like i'm a small business so we added yeah. three people and i just told them was like all right here's the criteria identify your spirit animal and then yeah. give them the name and what's the personality and why do you want to join 
as I was talking to them, I'm learning more about how the the Gen Z is like looking at life and workplace. Yeah. I think that while they are very technologically sophisticated, they are not particularly comfortable and they're actually quite vulnerable in sharing because it's like all texting, right? Mostly texting. There are a couple yeah. of people very, very like articulate and stuff like that. I've been very impressed. But I think that, you know, it's kind of interesting. I think that might actually have the influence of my prof- lay professor that the education piece of it, because he kind of, there's so many people in my life that actually contributed to my own growth. And now I'm in the position to do that. I was like, oh, maybe we could do this. And so we are doing our on-demand course on um, one of the areas is going to be leadership and team building. And I just send them like the workbook that we, the modules that we did. And the very first one is do introvert make better leaders or extrovert make better leaders. So on that note, I want to thank you for your time. Really appreciate it. Always a pleasure. And whenever I go to the USPTO campus, maybe we'll grab lunch. Please, yes, at least a cup of coffee. Thank you for inviting me. And I learned very much a lot from you, believe me. Uh, This has been a mutual uh, win-win situation. I learned just as much as I uh, give you information. So you've enriched uh, my experience as well. Well, thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. You too, Ashley. Have a good one.